we have a special message from all four of our pastors doing a special Q&A panel to wrap up our series, A Call for Courage. Questions were texted in by the congregation and answered live by Pastor Michael Anthony, our lead pastor, Pastor Joe Ercoli, our Next Steps pastor, Pastor Brandon Vyeth, our student ministries pastor, and Pastor Bob Tome, our missions and counseling pastor. Now, hold on to your seats as all of our pastors teach from God's Word. All right, let's just jump right in here. You can text or email your question, q at graceyork.com. I get them live right here. We're going to take them unscripted. Here's a question that came in. Talk about jumping right in. Through various sermons, it's been stated that the church has not done enough to promote better relationships in regard to race and racism. However, the church should play a more vital role in this societal ill because as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to apply his spiritual truths to our daily lives. Imagine that, right? What effect do you think the preconceived ideas that people in the church have about other races play in race and racism? Describe some concrete steps that the church could take in order to promote better relationships in regard to race and racism. Great, great question. Actually, a couple of questions. In Revelation chapter 5, I'd like you to read that, Pastor Joe, if you could. See, this is a theological issue. Racism is not only a moral issue, it's a theological issue. And I'm going to show you that black is beautiful, and so is white, and so is red, and so is yellow. Go ahead. Yeah, so a little bit of context. This is Revelation chapter five. This is what the 24 elders, when they're casting their crowns before Jesus, are saying. And they're saying this, this is verse nine. They sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Oftentimes, we think that we should be colorblind, right? That we should not see people on the basis of their color. I don't think that that's actually true. I think that we should see people on the basis of their color, and that each one of those colors is beautiful because God, as the creator, created them. Mm. Right? And so these colors don't go away in the eternal scheme of things because they're part of the way that God gets glory, that we're able to see the beautiful mosaic of all the kaleidoscope of color, right, of all the different ethnicities that God created, and that yet through all these different ethnicities, one died for all. Jesus died for every single one. And so one of the things that we have to understand is that racism is a theological issue, that when we're racist, we're out of whack with what the Bible teaches. Black is beautiful, white is beautiful, red is beautiful, brown is beautiful. Uh, I mean, I think so. I'm trying to work on my color this summer. I am. So the first thing that we need to understand is that we shouldn't see people as if we're all neutral in that we should be oblivious to the different colors that we see. Right? We should take note of the colors that we do see and remember that the color that you are is not superior to somebody else's color. By, as, evidenced, as evidenced by the fact that you're not the only skin color on the earth. Right? There are billions of people on the earth and 
multiple different types of skin colors, certainly ethnicities that are the reason why those skin colors arise. And then in the book of Revelation, you see every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Well, how would you be able to recognize those tongues and tribes and nations, right? Well, you're only going to be able to do it by language. Well, why are you saying that language is the only determinant? Who made you the judge and the jury? I think that skin color is something that is a beautiful thing because God created it. And it's important for preachers and teachers of the word of God to set the record straight. The church should be leading the way when it comes to addressing the issue of racism because it's a theological issue. That, once again, we're seeing manifest in the political realm, but it's not first and foremost a political issue, like many issues today. It's first and foremost a theological issue. And the other question was, you know, what are some of the things that the church can do? I think the church can help teach on this subject and also model on this subject. One of the primary mistakes I think that we've made in terms of our discipleship models, we think that if we teach people doctrine, that that's what it means to make disciples. And we forget the whole idea of modeling. You know, that statement, what you're doing speaks so loudly, I can't hear a word that you're saying, Mm. right? And so discipleship is often through what we model, through what we model. So in a given geographic area, a church should reflect in its congregation the ethnicity of the particular area where it is. Its staff should reflect that. Its leadership should reflect that so that your church actually has percentages that reflect your community. And if a church doesn't, I'll be very honest with you, if a church doesn't, that's a problem with the leadership of the church. How many of you are gardening, right? Some of you have given up, right? (laughs) Given up. Zucchini is the easiest thing to grow on the earth, isn't it? Now I know who the gardeners are. You didn't get your garden ready, you know, get your soil ready, put fertilizer in it, and then go to Home Depot or Lowe's or online, wherever you get your seed, and do what I did. Just mix them all up, throw them into the garden. That's, I lost my sheet of paper that told me where everything was, so I, it's all there. You didn't just do that and just sit back and just say, well, whatever comes up, comes up. You were intentional about your garden. You wanted to grow your tomato plants over here and your zucchini over here and how much watermelon you wanted to grow. I'm still trying to grow watermelon, by the way. I refuse to give up. You were intentional about it. Well, leaders in the church need to be intentional about what their melting pot reflects. Does it reflect the community you're living in or not? If it doesn't, then that's a poor reflection on the leaders of the church. Can I get an amen for that? So one of the things that leaders can do in a church is be intentional about the staff that you bring on to the church, the elders, the deacons that you bring on to the church, and to look out of the congregation, I'm going to be very honest with you, I don't think our church is enough of a melting pot. Now, I'm grateful over the past five years that it's gotten more like that. I am. I'm very grateful for that, super grateful for that. But I think we can do even more. I'd like to see our church, if I can be honest with you, I mean, if that's a beautiful sight to the Lord, what we read in Revelation 5, I'd like to see our church push the envelope and be more of a melting pot than what we see in our community so that we can be more of an example to the community that red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in God's sight. Look at this amazingly beautiful melting pot. That'd be a great name for a church, for people in the world who need to see the power of God. Because the only way people of different ethnicities could get together is if something dramatic happened, something supernatural happened. Last time I checked, something supernatural did happen on a cross where one person 
the Lord Jesus Christ died for black people and white people and red people and brown people and yellow people and all ethnicities, right? So uh, those are some of the things. I want to make sure I don't miss, I want to be very thorough with this question as well. Um, what effect do I think, or do we think that preconceived ideas that people, I'm going to volley this to you guys. What effect do you think that the preconceived ideas that people in the church have about other races play in race and racism? Go ahead. I finished reading, I was just finished reading a book entitled Counseling in the Urban Setting. And the whole idea of the book was that as believers, in this case it was talking about counselors, but we can talk about believers, we really need to understand and appreciate all the different ethnicity that exists in our community. And we do that by learning the traditions, learning the makeup of each home and culture, so that we are able to speak into that group of people. And what can really be exciting is watching and hearing how people worship God, how they learn as the Spirit of God works in their life, and how people from different cultures can come together and really have a neat experience in worshiping God. And, and that really made an impact because uh, just bringing it down to York City in particular, that school district is made up of 48% Hispanic people. Our community in York, I grew up in York. If you grew up in York, our community is changing. I'm 61. When I think back being 17, the culture has drastically changed. But in that is a beautiful experience when you find others to break bread with mm -hmm. and to learn about who they are and how God has uniquely created them as a person. Yeah. I think uh, stereotypes, there's all kinds of stereotypes that I wouldn't even have the dignity to entertain right now. But the way stereotypes are torn down is the same way, what is a stereotype? It's a perception of something that's not based on fact or truth, or it's a blanket approach. It's a blanket way of looking things that, that rejects specifics or exceptions. It doesn't allow for alternative perspectives. I'm speaking off the cuff on that, but I think that's fairly accurate. Stereotype, it's a blanket way of looking things that doesn't allow room for particulars. The cure for that is the same cure for anything else, any faulty thinking that you have in any area of your life. It's the Word of God. To get into the Word of God, for some of us, you never looked at Revelation 5 that way before and realized that, hey, ethnicity is something that has an eternally significant impact. You know, it's in Revelation 5, around the throne of the Lamb. So for some of us, we never thought about the different colors actually being a beautiful thing because there's so much in our culture which is not guided by the Bible, which pushes for, well, you gotta be neutral. You have to be colorblind. And the Bible's not colorblind. I think Simon of Cyrene, the guy who was given the responsibility to carry Jesus cross. Have you ever looked at where Cyrene is located? It's in Northern Africa. He probably was not white bread. And that guy had one of the most amazing privileges. Can you even stop and think about that? To carry the cross of Jesus. You didn't see the father saying, I don't want a person of color carrying my son's cross. Instead, it was, what a beautiful opportunity 
to carry my son's cross. I'm, that's a guy I want to meet in glory, is Simon of Cyrene. Man, what was that like when you were given, I'm getting chills thinking about it, given the opportunity, that tremendous privilege to carry the cross of your Savior? Amazing, amazing. Good stuff. So stereotypes are broken down by the Word of God. Faulty thinking, stinking thinking is replaced by right thinking from the Word of God. Great may, question. May Go I ahead, a few jump thoughts right on in. That? So looking at kind of the bookends of the Bible, so we looked at Revelation, and if we jump to the, to the other bookend of Genesis, so this, what I'm about to say might sound a little esoteric, it might be a little pie in the sky, but stay with me, we'll land the plane. In the beginning, God, okay, in the beginning, God, that's how scripture starts. We all know that, in the beginning, God. Well, who is this God? Well, we know from the rest of scripture that God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so within God himself, he is one. So there is unity in diversity. The diversity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the fact that we have different ethnicities today is actually a reflection of the very character of God himself. And so what he is looking for is he's looking for drawing all people of all cultures to himself through one particular person and his name was Jesus. And so it's the scandal of the cross that of this little tiny nation, one man who was a particular person in a particular place at a particular time died for all people. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So as far as, as we go as the church, there, there ought to be no room and no tolerance. And by when I say no tolerance, I mean in a loving way, not in a we're gonna shame people away, but no tolerance in a loving way for not just words that are racist, but attitudes that are racist. And for many of us, as somebody who grew up in Pennsylvania and who is, as you can see by my skin color, I am white, there are many racist attitudes that we have that we as white people may not even be aware of. And I'm, I'm just, I'm being very honest because I've had to repent of some of my own attitudes before I knew Jesus, which is why I'm such an advocate for what we're talking about now, now that I've come to know Jesus. So you think about later on in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, God says that they were united. And so he gave them all different languages to disperse them. And then we fast forward to the book of Acts chapter two in Pentecost and it reverses Babel. So all of these different ethnicities are together gathered in Israel, but they were all Jewish, but they were from different parts of the world. And then God lays his spirit on them. And it says that they were hearing, all the people who were gathered for Pentecost were hearing these men and potentially women as well speaking in their native language. So God is reaching the nations through this one person named Jesus. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So I think for, for us today, we've talked a little bit about uh, the intentionality that we're trying to have as a church to combat this issue that's very polarizing in our nation. It's very polarizing. And I wanna to try to land the plane on an individual level. I wanna challenge you guys with something because I've, I've tried to challenge myself with this. Surround yourself and build relationships with people who aren't like you. So that can be applied to ethnicity and that can be applied to people of different faiths. That can be applied to people of different ages because if we're going to be as the body of Christ, if we're gonna be multi-generational and we're gonna be multi-ethnic, multilingual, and we're gonna represent the kingdom of God right here in our context of York, 
then it lands the plane for your life and mine that we need to be building those relationships with people who aren't like us. And if I'm just being honest, I'm glad that, I'm glad. I'm glad that that's the response. That's good, that's, that's good because we're ripe. We're ripe, we're ready. We want to be that salt and light right here in our communities. So that's really, really exciting. But I wanna challenge you with one last thing. Don't buy into the easy, easy, easy polarization that the news media outlets, and I don't care if you watch Fox News or if you watch CNN, we're all guilty of picking up on one side of the story and running with it. And if we are going to be peacemakers, which is one of the things that Jesus has called us to, blessed are the peacemakers, then loving our neighbor starts by listening to our neighbor. Yeah. What does the Bible say about border security? Proverbs 22, 28 says, Proverbs 22, 28 says, do not move an ancient boundary stone. Do not move an ancient boundary stone. And so there's a good principle there, right? Proverbs is a good book, not for laws. A law is if I drop this, it's falling to the ground 10 times out of 10. A principle is something that generally speaking, given the same circumstances, you would be able to apply this truth or this behavior. The idea is that boundaries matter on individual property rights in the Bible. The idea of moving a boundary stone would involve thievery. You'd be stealing something from somebody else. So if that's true on a personal level, then how much more would that be true on a national level? I'm trying to give you principles to think through some things. In addition, the primary responsibility of government, of any government, is to protect its law-abiding citizens so that civility that honors God, God likes order, not disorder, so that civility has the greatest opportunity within that country, whatever country it might be. So that's one of the primary responsibilities of government, to protect its law-abiding citizens. If a government doesn't do that, then what you're actually doing is you're inviting chaos and you're putting your citizens at risk for harm and difficulty and violence and theft and all kinds of crime and chaos, all for the purpose of not taking your role as a leader in the government seriously, which is to protect your people. Three institutions created by God, and that's why all three are under attack. First one is the family, institution created by God. Male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. Be fruitful and multiply, goes back to Genesis. And then government, governments. We see that even in the Old Testament, that God uses one government to bring down another, to execute his judgment, to execute his plan, which is all based on Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment of that. You've heard me talk about that before. So government is that second institution created by God for the purpose of God, even though all things are created for God's purpose, but institutions, right? And the third is the church, the church created by God for the glory of God. And if we take confusion and chaos seriously, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. If we take the idea of theft and crime and those things seriously, that those things are bad, then we put the perspective of border security and you begin to realize well, maybe border security actually is an important thing. We have certain laws that 
people from other parts of the world want to come to the United States because we have been known, at least up until recent times, so it seems, as a nation of civility, a nation of laws, a nation of order. My grandfather was an immigrant from Italy, and my wife is an immigrant from Canada. She's here legally, has her green card, and her family went through an incredible amount to get their ability to be here legally in the country, and her father just became a U.S. citizen about two years ago, maybe three years ago. Okay. And so there are principles in the Bible where you're not necessarily going to see things stated in black and white. Hey, this is, you know, line three, section two says this. You have to think when you read the Bible. So if God likes order, if he's against violence, if he's against chaos, then that's why border security matters. Now, there are all kinds of stereotypical things that are happening today. Well, what do we do about refugees that are coming in? Well, those are refugee issues. We have in the country an illegal immigration problem. We don't have an immigration problem as much as an illegal immigration problem. And it's important to use that distinction. It is. It's important to use that distinction. And I'm saying that as a descendant of an immigrant and as somebody who's married to one, all right? So are there things that can be done in regard to you know, balancing this whole idea of we have people who want to get into the country through Trojan horse means? That's a fact. You would be stupid, and I say that respectfully, you would be stupid to just totally reject that. So I hope that you are praying for our leaders, all of our leaders, whether they're Democrat, Republican, whether they're libertarian, whether they're supposedly liberal, supposedly conservative. I hope that you're praying because these are, in one sense, they're not very complex problems. On another hand, they are complex problems. But a nation that doesn't take its border seriously does not take civility seriously. It doesn't. And I'm not saying that in a hateful way toward people who might disagree. I'm just saying it, trying to be rational about it. We need to be compassionate, right? Even in the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy, and the United States is not a theocracy, when they were to reap their harvest, they were to leave some of the food on the outermost portions so that foreigners and the underprivileged could glean that food. That's where the word gleaning comes from. Could glean some of that food and they could be taken care of. So there was compassion even in a theocracy. So the way we handle the border, the way we handle immigration and customs law needs to be compassionate and it also needs to be wise because I lock my doors at night at my house. I lock my car doors when I go to a mall that I'm not familiar with. Some of you do too. How many of you do that? Of course you do. So why wouldn't you want your borders to have some type of security? You just proved it by locking your car doors and locking the doors of your house that security is important for you on a personal level. Well, if you don't think it's important at a national level, then you better really start locking your doors. And I'm not saying that in fear-mongering. I'm just saying it as a matter of common sense. That's what I think the Bible says about that. I'm gonna drop this to... Pastor Bob, what does the Bible say about depression? Hmm. Our counseling pastor. Well, depression, like many other things, are heart-level issues when you work through all the tough circumstances on top. There are a whole lot of things that people deal with, whether it's experiences from childhood, whether there are relationship issues in marriage or parent-child, or just someone who has been around an environment, a family environment, where depression uh, is very obvious. We do see in the Bible characters like Elijah and others who were depressed. 
Uh, God does speak about depression. He also speaks about cure for depression as well, working through some of the circumstances, whether you look in Elijah's life where God had Elijah get by himself, rest and eat, rest and eat. Or you come to the New Testament in the book of Philippians, for example, where God says that instead of focusing so much on myself, I need to think about the needs of others. Now, again, I say that very black and white. Uh, I know that when people come and talk about depression, there are things that have affected their lives. They're hurting. There's a lot of uh, turmoil that may be going on. Loneliness could be happening. So I don't want to minimize those things that are part of their life as we move from working on those surface areas, as we walk through those things from a clinical perspective, and we get to the heart level issue of depression, there's that hope. I would also say that in our counseling, we would not tell someone uh, not to use their medication. So if you're struggling with a depression, you find many examples in the Bible of great men who suffered with depression. The greater God provides a way out as we work from the surface of hurts down into the heart to bring some of those changes about. Good word, good word. Uh, here's a question I'm gonna give to Pastor Brandon. True story apparently, one day on the bus ride home from school, the nine-year-old girl was having a conversation on the bus with a boy on the bus. During the conversation, the little girl brought up Jesus and she started sharing her faith with the boy. She was all excited because this is how she was taught as a Christian, this is what you're to do. While leaving the bus, the little boy tells the bus driver about this conversation with the girl and how talking about Jesus made him feel very uncomfortable. The bus driver then decides to tell the little girl we're not allowed to talk about Jesus on the bus. As you can imagine, the little girl's spirit was crushed. She came home crying and telling her parents what had just happened. What's the proper way for parents to respond? What I would say in that situation, any situation, when you're facing persecution for sharing your faith, opposition for sharing your faith, if you're in communication, talking with somebody, a family member, anybody that's had issue with that, the three things I would really do is encourage, challenge, and defend. Those three things, that first step you as a parent can take with your child is to encourage them, say, yeah, that's exactly what you're supposed to do as a follower of Jesus. You're supposed to share your faith. And then you're going to have to challenge her. You're going to have to challenge that friend. You're going to have to challenge that child and say, listen, we're told all throughout the New Testament, we're told all throughout Scripture in general, First and Second Peter is filled with it, John talks about it, that you are going to suffer for being a believer. If the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. If you suffer for being a Christ follower, rejoice in that for you partake in the sufferings of Christ. Challenge your child to continue sharing. So you encourage. Yes, you were supposed to do that. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. You console as well. You challenge. And third is defend. And this isn't something that you're going to be doing with your child, but the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania if you go home and you Google that and it will pop up an 80 page document of every single right of a teacher, coach or student in any school system and no religious belief can be taught or oppressed by someone employed by a public school system, which means that that bus driver saying there's no conversation about Jesus taking place is illegal. That cannot happen. You as a parent have a legal right to go to the school system. Now, doing this in love, are you get, pulling out your white picket fence and, and you're going in front? No, 
But going to the school system and saying, listen, I, I have a problem with this. I would like to have a conversation with this bus driver. I'd like to have a conversation about this because, and you can take that piece of paper with you, based on the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania, my child has the right to practice her faith. And a part of practicing her faith is sharing her faith. But the bus driver does not have the right to tell her no. So I would really encourage those, those three or four things. Encourage, along with consoling, challenging and making it very clear, listen, yeah, this is gonna keep happening. Sweetheart, you're gonna keep experiencing this. If anything, you should rejoice in this. And then after you've had those conversations, you and your spouse, you need to sit down and say, okay, how are we gonna defend our daughter? How are we gonna really come alongside our daughter and make sure she is able to practice her faith? Yeah, and I think that your children need to see you model excitement mm-hmm. that, honey, that's fantastic that you took a stand for Jesus and I'm so proud of you. Your children need to hear those words of affirmation, yep. get a hug. I'm so proud of what you did. That's just like, and then take them to the book of Acts. It's just like what the apostles did. Remember, the Bible's not a book of exceptions, it's a book of examples, right? So there are examples. That's what Daniel did in the lion's den. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, somebody should preach something about that. <laughs> that that's what these characters, uh, biblically speaking, did, right? I want to try to move along so we try to get as much, try to do some lightning round stuff here. Discuss um, the importance of judges in the Supreme Court as well as circuit and district courts. Uh, It's huge. You know, the president plays a huge role in theology. If President Trump had not been elected as president, the other candidate, the primary candidate who would have been in office had already talked about having a very different litmus test for the kind of judges that would be appointed to federal and Supreme Court, and you would be dealing with decisions. There were five to four decisions recently that shouldn't have even been close. There would have been probably five to four or perhaps, what, six to three in the other direction if Hillary Clinton had been elected. And I I say that respectfully, but it's true. So Mm -hmm. it's a huge thing. Um, The Supreme Court justices play a huge role. So do federal justices who are appointed by the president as well in theology, theological issues. So that's why you need to be involved in the political realm. When you gave your life to Christ, you didn't give up your right to be a participant in the political realm. If all Christians, people who embrace Judeo-Christian values, pull out of the political process, the only people who are left are people who don't embrace Judeo-Christian values, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to pass legislation and appoint justices who don't support Judeo-Christian values, and you're going to say, oh my goodness, the rapture must be soon. No, don't say that. It's because we pulled out when we should have been salt and light. Salt saturates and permeates. We say these things repeatedly, so hopefully you begin to understand, right? It's starting to make sense, some of what we're saying? It's starting to make sense? I hope so. Who wants to answer this one? What's the biblical way, I have no idea what this is, to respond and or witness to people who are hostile to the gospel and say they do not have the capacity to believe? Is it okay to ignore rather than to argue? Who wants to take that? Consistency, consistency, consistency. I love my brother to death. The first time I shared Jesus with him, he physically threw a skateboard at me. Second time, he cussed at me. Another time, he was high on heroin. Consistency, consistency, consistency. And I love my brother. He doesn't mind me sharing this. After seven years of consistency, he had to spend a short amount of time in prison after he was out and this isn't because of me. This is because of Jesus and because of the gospel. Right. After, 
that short amount of time in prison, he gets out, I sit down, I talk with him. The first thing he tells me is, hey man, I was, I was reading my Bible and telling all my inmates that you're a pastor. The same guy that threw a skateboard at me, the same guy that cussed at me, the same guy that uh, was high when I tried to share the gospel with him, incredibly hostile towards the gospel. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Good, good. All right, stuff's unscripted. Who wants to take this one? Uh, Lately, the world seems to finally be coming around to equality for women, though I still feel we have a long way to go. What are your viewpoints on women in ministry, and don't you feel that perhaps there should be a woman on the panel today to give a different perspective on all the topics being brought up? No. Gotcha, gotcha. Who wants to try to answer that first? Can't we have fun up here? Can we not have fun up here? I think, You're gonna start throwing tomatoes at us, for those of you who know where they are in your garden? I'll just say one thing real brief, then kick it around to whoever wants to take it, but um, to the question of the, on the panel, I'm gonna speak for me, I'm gonna say yes. I would love to see that. But one thing that we miss in our culture today is that people look at us as believers, and, and this is a generalization, not everybody would say this, but many people do. They say, oh, well, you're a believer, and therefore, you know, you don't want equality for women, and you demean women because you're a follower of Jesus. And I just think, oh my word, I hope that I don't ever communicate that in my life. I hope that we don't ever communicate that as a church. But yes, I have been around believers who have communicated that. And it's very sad because it's a complete misunderstanding of Jesus. It's a complete misunderstanding of the context in which the New Testament was written. Just one example, Ephesians 5 is a passage that particularly men love to go to. And they say, oh, look, hun, you're supposed to respect me. And there we go. I got Bible on that because I'm the head of the house. We don't preach that way here. You've heard Pastor Mike talk on that passage, preach on that passage before. That's not where we land on that passage because verse 21 of chapter five says, everybody needs to submit to one another first. And then Paul says, okay, now marriage. Here's what this looks like. Wives, you need to respect or submit to your husbands as the church does to Jesus. And then he says, guys, here's the real oomph. Here's the real challenge you need to love your wives as Jesus loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave up his life. And so what, what we miss is in the context that the New Testament was written, that would have been beyond radical. Radical is not even the right word. It doesn't even get at the context of that day and, and age, how women were treated and how Jesus comes along to women and treats them in a wholly other way than the culture treated them is mind-blowing. And then Paul comes along, he's often accused of being a chauvinist. Paul comes along and it's just as radical as Jesus and we miss it. Mm. Yeah, good point. Mm. Should there be a woman up on the panel uh, today? Yes and no, I don't mind saying that. We're your pastors and um, this is a pastor's panel. So that's why we are the guys that are up here. Would I be opposed to having a woman up here on the panel? Absolutely not. Um, I just want you to also know that there's, there's theological training from seminary and Bible college that's up here with actual degrees and ordination um, that's taking place for three of us. You're going to be ordained um, sometime relatively soon. So there's reasoning behind why the four of us are up here, and uh, it's something that I wanted to do rather than just having me. Don't you get tired of hearing me all the time? Mm. I get tired of hearing me all the time. <laughs> it's just something I thought, it's not what we don't have up here, it's what we do have up here. My choice to bring the other pastors up here to give you exposure. Mm. 
The other thing, too, is, so would I be opposed to having women up here? Absolutely not, and we just wouldn't call it a pastor's panel. And bring my wife up here, for that matter. You want to come up here now? <laughs> she does want to come up here. You want to come up here and answer that question about, we were just talking about this yesterday. You come, come up here. Let's get, let's get my wife a microphone. Oh. <laughs> we were just... We were just talking about the hostility between men and women that seems to have reached, and everything seems to be at a boiling point, right? And some of the reasoning behind that, right, hon? You remember that? We were just talking about that. You, you might need to clean the house, cook uh, dinner I'm, later today. <laughs> absolutely. What do you want? What this is I my do? wife, Janet, the, the Canadian. <laughs> Hostilities between men and women um, and uh, we finally have, seem to be coming around with equality for women, though I still feel we have a long way to go. What are your viewpoints on women in ministry? Uh, not that aspect as much as the aspect of um, why do you think there's this hostility, hostility. and this pushback today? Um, well, I think that we, um, we've seen in a lot of different areas how the pendulum tends to swing too far the other direction, we can all think of different areas in life where we've seen that happen, and I think that's happening right now because um, I think that we have seen a lot of years where women were were unfairly treated, um, not just in the workplace, but I think that just what Pastor Joe was saying, um, we don't actually see what Scripture is saying about how women are supposed to be treated. Those scriptures have been taken out of context and women have been told to submit to their husbands and it's been in an ungodly way and they haven't looked at the verse that follows that talks about loving your wives as Christ loved the church. So we have had a real imbalance, I think. I think that's legitimate. And I think that when what we're seeing happening right now in our society, I kind of feel like on the one hand, I don't blame women for wanting to stand up for themselves and for wanting to be strong. And, you know, you see signs and things everywhere, you know, women rule or what are the other things that are out there right now, like the... The future is female. Yeah, mm. some of those kinds of things. Like, in some ways, I don't, I don't blame them for that. I feel like um, women have really not had some of the same opportunities that, that men have had. And I also see it even today... I have friends whose dads say disparaging things to them about being girls. I've seen it very recently in people's lives, people that I know. There's also been, you know, much worse than just that, the, the disparaging comments that are made. Obviously, we all know about, like, the sexual abuse and stuff like that that has been rampant in our country. And so mm -hmm. there is that part of it. But I think it's a case of the pendulum swinging too far the other direction, Obviously, um, you know, I'm a mother of boys and I hear some of this and I, and I think, you know, are, are we then not supposed to honor and respect, you know, our little boys that are growing up? Mm -hmm. are, you know, there has to be that equality. And I think it kind of goes back to the, how we began this whole morning with the racial stuff. Yes, racial equality, but racial equality is not the same thing as being colorblind. You... You see the differences in the race, you appreciate them, you celebrate them. It's something that God did very purposefully and he did the same thing with gender. Mm -hmm. He did that very purposefully and we should recognize the differences 
we should recognize and celebrate the differences. Another thing that we talked about last night was just, I personally have an issue with the label tomboy. She does. Um, (laughs) Because honestly, (laughs) I, I think that's part of the problem that even many years ago, some of these labels were put on girls and that label was not considered to be a bad thing at the time. But what it did was it made it seem like if a girl was interested in catching frogs and climbing trees and getting dirty in the mud, instead of putting on a pink frilly dress, that made her, that was somehow a little bit unnatural and that put her in a different category and she was a tomboy. And I personally did all of those things on both sides. I loved my pink frilly dress and I got as dirty as the next guy. And um, I think they're all very natural. God, those are things that God gave us to be interested in in this world and boys and girls should alike have the opportunity to appreciate those things and to and to be good at some of those things but um, I'm I'm kind of losing my train of thought because I know I've talked too long here. Okay, that's good. <laughs> did you did you <laughs> did you do the frogs and the um, get all muddy in a pink frilly dress? Probably. Okay. Yes. You know, uh, th- and this is, I think, part, you know, we're reaping what we've sown for years in terms of the pendulum swinging this way. I think one of the hardest things uh, to be in the United States today is a white young boy. Seriously. And it just goes to show, just like people were tweeting at me yesterday about how socialism is the real democracy because it gives power to the people. Socialism, just so you know, and Christianity are incompatible because socialism is an atheistic worldview. The government becomes God and takes care of you from cradle to grave, and we will force you to give, and then the 1% that is the government, it's just a new 1%, that's all it is, will now redispense, redistribute all the wealth. That's what socialism is, all right? Capitalism gives you the opportunity to take your money that God gives you and to use it for God's glory. And you will be accountable to, at the judgment seat of Christ one day for how you use that money. Not the government or the justice of, you know, it's the Supreme Court or some other justice system. But the, the pendulum, you know, it just goes to show that here we are ranting and raving about inequality and whatever it might be, right? And then when we're given an opportunity to be in the majority or to be in power, what do we do? We stick it in the face of the people who were sticking it in our face. And so we do, we're guilty of the same thing. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know, that's what Paul says. We end up doing the same thing because it, it's really the heart of the matter. Unless the human heart is changed, we will do the same sinful things to each other given the right opportunity. We will. If the tables were turned, we would do the same types of things except for the power of God, the grace of God. And one of the things that we're experiencing today with gender confusion is because of these very things that we're talking about here, just touching the tip of the iceberg, the idea of stereotypes that, well, to be feminine means you have to embrace this particular, you have to walk this walk, or to be masculine means you have to walk this walk. And if you don't, then we're gonna categorize you. And, and so does it mean that because a, a young man likes ballet, that he, well, he likes ballet? Does that mean now he has to change his gender because he likes ballet and he likes art and he likes music? That's ridiculous. Or a woman who likes to go hunting and shoot things. That's my kind of woman, by the way. Right there. Right there she is. A woman who likes to do that kind of stuff, does that mean she can't be a woman? 
It's ridiculous stereotypes that aren't even biblical. I mean, you look at some of the women in Scripture, I, I would not want to go up, up against some of these women. They would kick my butt seven ways sideways. Just think about childbirth and what you do with childbirth. Ain't no man that wants to do that, okay? So, thank you, hon. Thank you very much. Pastor Joe, come on back up here. Um, let's see what else we might have time for here. Pastor Mike, real quick. Yes, go ahead. As you read, I think we've seen this dramatic shift in... Um, this desire for roles to change because we have an honored calling. Mm -hmm. And what I was always taught in, in college and in seminary was equal in calling, different in role. So to speak to the single mother, the homeschool mom, you are beautifully embracing your calling as a woman to be a mother. But sadly, what culture has done has devalued that and saying, moms, you can't survive without a man to bring home money. Women, you can't make it without the guy because you're supposed to be vacuuming in a dress and pearls, taking care of Wally and Beaver. Yeah. So we've seen that the role of, of women and being a wife and being a mother has been devalued. So women now responding, rightly so, want to change roles because we've devalued the calling, the beautiful yeah. calling yeah. of being a wife and mother. Just because yeah. the roles are different doesn't mean the significance is different. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, and, and also value and worth. One is not better than the other. Mm -hmm. One is different than the other. Mm -hmm. Complementary to the other. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and this, is, this is why the Bible needs to be the compass of your life. And people will say, yeah, there are people who yeah, use the Bible to support whatever in the past. We're not talking about the past, everybody. This is the 21st century, all right? This is 2018. I'm not gonna let somebody hold the past over my future, and you shouldn't either. You got a Bible? You got to read whatever version of the Bible you want, NIV, ESV, New American Standard, whatever version you want, read that Bible and apply it and put it into practice. The past is the past, this is the present. Let's be movers and shakers as we take things forward. Very important. Mm -hmm. Here's a question. The Bible says that we should not judge others, yet I find that many Christians, myself included, constantly judging others. What can I do to stop these judgmental thoughts? Read your Bible to build your faith. Lift your Bible, okay? Uh, just trying to do a lightning round here. It's also important to understand there's a difference between judging versus being judgmental. They're not the same thing. Jesus judged. In fact, he's coming back to judge. There's a whole chapter in my book, A Call for Courage. If you haven't read it yet, that is called Did Jesus Judge? And I answer the question for you. And in fact, the whole book helps you understand how to judge without being judgmental. You have to. You have to. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to read the Bible. The whole Bible is a book about judging attitudes and behaviors, the whole Bible, right? Teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. Well, how do you know what obedience is if there's no such thing as disobedience, if there's no such thing as right and wrong? So being judgmental is not the same as judging. You have to judge with yourself. Jesus didn't say, remove the log from your own eye and leave your brother alone and stop talking to him. He didn't say that. He said, remove the log from your own eye, then you will be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's right. And this is why you hear us talking about all the time the need for repentance. If we would repent and apply the Bible in our own lives, then maybe people would look at our lives as conservative evangelicals and say, you know what, I want to follow you as you're following Christ. You're really serious about this Jesus. It's not just Bible memorization, it's Bible application. 
that's why we need to judge beginning with ourselves to make sure that our lives fall in line with the Lord. Let's see what we've got here. Teaching children. Do you have any insights from the Bible on whether we should segregate our children from secular education through homeschooling or risk them prematurely engaging in a secular education system that's often at odds with Christian values we want to instill in our families? Whoever wants to take this can take this. In other words, Biblical insights on a homeschool versus public school. Is there a single right or wrong answer? That's a question that, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I, we had our first child. He's going on six months old now. He's grown too fast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, he's phenomenal. So here we are. We're already asking this question, the same question that's being asked. I would just say to kind of take it from a different approach instead of either or, which one should we choose? Don't forget that the primary responsibility of discipling your child falls on you. That doesn't matter if you choose homeschool or if you choose public education or if you choose private school, you're free in Jesus to choose whichever one you want to choose, that's fine. And by the way, not every child is gonna be the same. So maybe you have multiple children, one is homeschooled, one is in public school, one's doing cyber school. Not all children are created equal, they're not all cookie cutter. So you need to be able to contextualize, you need to be able to determine who's gonna need what here. But don't forget that the primary responsibility falls on you. So that means if your child is going to public school, then you need to be in dialogue with them when they come home. You need to be in dialogue with them. What are you learning? So that you can come alongside, you can do what you shared earlier. You can encourage them, you can challenge them, and then you can help them defend the faith that you're trying to instill in them that as they grow needs to become their own faith. Mm -hmm. That's really true. And the public schools need our prayers and they need you to be a supporter and a challenger for them. Mm -hmm. So that when something that happened in Pennsylvania where parents and guardians were not allowed to see pro-LGBTQ videos, this actually happened, that the children were watching in homeschool, that should concern a parent or guardian who has their children in public school. But the teachers and the superintendents, the principals, they don't need to just hear from you when there's something wrong. They also need to hear from you when there's something right, mm -hmm. so that you're not the villain, you are the encourager and the supporter and the nurturer. They need to see that, right? In some instances, homeschooling is the only viable option because of some of the policies that might already be in full force in a public school system that are gonna indoctrinate children against Judeo-Christian values, just about gender alone as, mm -hmm. as one example. See, the thing about tolerance is that it's a paradox, right? If you take the push for tolerance to its extreme, you can't be tolerant because tolerance is everybody needs to have a place at the table. Well, what if I don't agree with your place? Well, then you can't have a place at the table. But isn't that intolerance? That's exactly what it is. Tolerance has been rebranded these days as being the supreme value in our country, right? And globally, right? But actually it's intolerance it's intolerance for anybody who says that there's an exclusive teaching, an exclusive view. May I have one, yes, one go more ahead. quick thing to that? So I, I, I don't know if any of you know Babylon B. It's, it's a satirical, <laughs> it's a Christian website that's satirical and they'll come, just go ahead and just Google it. It's hilarious, you'll be dying of laughter. So I saw a couple days ago, there was this Babylon B article. It said, uh, it was youth group. It said, youth group prays over students that they won't buy the lies that they were never equipped to, to battle. So if you do choose to not have your child in public school, then you need to ensure that at some point at the appropriate age that you are exposing them to the other viewpoints 
that mm-hmm. don't flow out of scripture so that you can help them understand how to think logically and rationally through why to not believe that rather than you just saying something like socialism is bad or believe the Bible because God says so. Mm-hmm. That's, that's unacceptable and that's not gonna prepare our children to actually be the salt and light in the world yeah. that we live in. You have to engage more than ever today. You have to engage, you have to pay attention. Ignore your children, they'll go away. They're gonna get answers about everything in life from somebody. God's given you an opportunity, a very limited window of time to disciple your children and to nurture them and to encourage them and to get their moral compass down. Raising children is a mirror for your own life. What are you doing for Jesus? How are you walking with Jesus, right? Let's do a couple lightning rounds here. Pastor Bob, did you wanna say something? Well, the only thing I was thinking as a counselor from that perspective is whether you have your child in a public school, homeschool, private school, your child still has a sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And when I think it, when I hear those things sometimes, I feel like parents want to pass the buck to someone else in raising their children. That's right, yeah. And so they look for other avenues when a lot of times, you know, they really need to be the parent to help their children walk in a godly way. Including the church. Yeah, excellent. yeah including excellent, the church. Excellent, excellent. Here's another question. Recently, someone asked me where I went to church, and I said grace, and after a few minutes uh, of explaining which grace, <laughs> the person said, isn't that the church where the pastor is really political? And I said, yes, all caps, but shouldn't we as Christians get political? Great answer, and I would encourage you as well, when politicians start acting as pastors, we pastors need to help set the record straight about theology. Haven't you understood, even by our brief time today, all the issues we've talked about are theological in nature? Aren't all the issues we've talked about theological in nature? I'm tired as a pastor seeing politicians hijack the pulpit and speak about theological issues. Can we get upset about that with their godly righteousness? I am tired, and you should be too, putting words in Jesus' mouth, twisting the Bible, and trying to make it say what they want to say for political purposes, we have a moral and a spiritual obligation before God, and so do you as a Christ follower. When you hear a politician acting like a pastor, you need to stand up and speak out because theology is the number one issue today, not politics. These are all theological issues, gender, race, foreigners and immigration, and how we treat other races men versus women, women versus men. All of these things are theological issues. And politicians are talking about them, sadly, makes me wanna cry when I even say this. The reason why the politicians are talking about it is because we pastors aren't. Shame on us. So, great answer. Uh, Next time somebody says, is that the political church? You might wanna say, actually, don't you think it's about time that theologians and pastors help point wayward politicians in the right direction when it comes to theology that they don't really even understand themselves, okay? I would love for you to discuss the role of grandparents biblically. I'm all for it. Pastor Bob, are you for it? Yeah. Listen, uh, you wanna say anything about grandparents, the role of grandparents? You are one. Yeah, well, I think uh, for Sue and I, one of the things we work hard to do is respect our children in raising their children. But I don't believe the role of a parent ever stops. I think it Mm -hmm. changes. I think coming alongside your children, 
and encouraging them and blessing them, not just always harping on them for doing, uh, you know, the wrong thing. I think back several months ago, God just put on my heart uh, our daughter-in-law who's in New Jersey and, and just reminded me that as a leader, I'm a leader to my children, but grandchildren. And so I need to bless. And I, God just put on my heart to bless her. And so I got a gift card and I got a piece of paper and a note. And I wrote how proud I was of her and how wonderful she's doing as a mother. And that's very encouraging. So I think the role of a grandparent should be very positive, speaking into the life of their children and grandchildren. And then that earns you the right to talk about some of the hard things that you may see. And we've talked about hard things in our family too, not just good things, but we've talked about those things. But it's always being there. It's always being that leader as a grandparent. It's always respecting the parents' wishes as they're raising their children. And at the same time, being a guide to those children and grandchildren. That's great. That's great. Interested morning in today. Are you glad Michael that we did this. An we appreciate this kind of thing. Or as a awesome. keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. You can get more resources just like this through the app and website too.